Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with two authors, Edward Blum and Paul Harvey, about their great new book, The Color of Christ, The Son of God and the Saga of Race in America, which was published by University of North Carolina Press in 2012. Jesus has inspired millions of people to both strive for social justice and commit horrific acts of violence. In the United States, Jesus has remained central in the construction of American identities, and debates about Jesus have frequently revolved around his skin color and bodily appearance. Why, for example, do we imagine a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus? In The Color of Christ, we get a history of Americans' encounters with images of Jesus and the creation of them. Bloom and Harvey have carefully mined a plethora of sources, including paintings, drawings, music, poetry, sermons, visions, and other historical documents, to reveal the rich conversation Americans have had around religion and race. The Color of Christ offers a chronological history from the colonial period to the present that weaves through the construction of Jesus' image in various Christian groups, consisting primarily of white members, and appropriations and challenges within Native American and African American communities. In our chat, Bloom and Harvey discuss the ups and downs of American religious history, offering various vignettes of Jesus' role in determining public opinions about race. They also help us think about being an author, and in our conversation we discuss issues of public scholarship, hustling as an academic, successful peer review, editorial control, and co-writing a book. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ed Bloom and Paul Harvey. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ed Bloom and Paul Harvey about their great new book, uh, The Color of Christ, the Son of God, and the Saga of Race in America. Thanks for joining us, guys. How are you? Doing well. Very good. Thank you, Kristen, for having us. Yeah, thanks thanks for being on the show. This is this is a great book. Uh, you guys have have got a lot of attention uh, for this book, so congratulations! And hopefully, we can uh, maybe rehash some of the things you guys have talked about in other places, but also explore some new new topics that uh, arise from this book. Uh, but before we get into it, maybe you guys could uh, briefly introduce yourselves, kind of how you got interested in uh, studying religion, perhaps people that might have been very influential in how you approach religion, um, and perhaps a little bit about how your guys' relationship, how how you guys got connected. And Yeah, well, um, thanks, Christian. This is Ed Bloom here. And um, I, uh, I, as a young, um, before I was a teenager, I witnessed my alcoholic father um, have an evangelical conversion experience and um, change from being a kind of pretty terrible person to a kind of okay person. And so witnessing the power of religion in an individual's life is something that was really impressed 
on me, you know, at age nine, age 10. And, um, and I had went to college and had every intention of becoming a, a minister and wanted to learn religious history so I could use good vignettes and sermons. And, uh, I took a class with, um, Susan Juster at the university of Michigan. And she just opened my eyes to the whole wide panoply of, of religion in society. And it's, impact on gender and race and material culture. And so she really um, kind of transformed me from someone who wanted to use religious studies and religious history to study other things to someone who was just, I was just became fascinated with writing about the power of religion in people's lives. Uh, this is Paul Harvey speaking here. So I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma as a Southern Baptist where the church was sort of all-consuming in a way that it, it used to be in, in many parts of the South, still is in some parts as well. And um, as a as a teenager, I was seriously thinking about being, becoming a missionary, and I, I spent some time in, in Brazil and South America when I was 14 and 15 years old, as a matter of fact, um, kind of exploring that possibility, doing some volunteer work. Um, much later, I went to college in Oklahoma and had a I don't know, a deconversion experience, if you will, moved to California to get as far away from that as I could. And in California, discovered via my famously um, uh, Jewish atheist professor, Leon Litwack, that uh, religion is really what I wanted to study. So I came about this in a very roundabout, strange sort of way. Um, but he, he led me to the study of Southern history. And as I began to study Southern history, my aim was really to write an integrated interracial history of the South that I thought no one really was doing. Um, and it just seemed that religion was just a great way to do that. So that's, that's really where I got started. I've moved on to other things since then, but that's both a kind of personal and academic explanation for how I became interested in religion. Paul, do you want to talk about our, the status of our relationship? <laughs> uh, well, we were going to have a breakup interview here, but we'll, we'll let's save that for a little bit down the road. Well, it developed from many reasons, both personal and, and professional. We actually have sort of different answers about that. Um, but I became connected to Ed. I don't remember how exactly, but at some point early before I'd ever met him in person, he reviewed a former book of mine. And it was one of those, I often tell this to graduate students, that was one of those reviews that he had many nice things to say, but he also pointed out some serious flaws with the book. And I immediately thought, this guy is really smart. I really need to get to know this guy. It was it, So I, I often tell people now, don't be afraid to raise legitimate criticisms of a book because you may end up with a, a very fruitful uh, professional connection from that. Um, and uh, so we began talking over by email around that time. Some years later, I was the mentor for the Young Scholars and American Religion group starting in um, whatever year that was, 2007, I believe. And uh, Ed was in that group as a young scholar. I myself had been a young scholar back in 1993 to 95 and now was like the senior mentor. Um, and so this was after just after we had begun this book. And so we had a, we had a long period of gestation about it. Uh, via the internet and, and, and in person. Um, and I know that both of us had our own kind of personal connection to the book because we're very committed to understanding how religion has informed race 
in American history, uh, obviously in some profoundly disturbing and terrible ways, and also in ways that are very creative and um, inspiring as well. So that that was very much part of it. Go ahead, Ed. Yeah, I think the only thing I would really add to that is, you know, Paul and I have spent all these years thinking about you know, toying with these relationships between race race and racial categories and religion and religious ideas and concepts and organizations. And um, Jesus just seemed like such a great totem, such a great uh, person to just refract all that through. And But he was too big. Jesus was just kind of too big for one of us to write on. And so it became a kind of tag team um, approach, which um, I know I couldn't have really mass. I couldn't have mastered the material on my own um, in a timely or thoughtful way. So that's, that's really where it came from. Yeah. And if I can add to that, there's, there really was so much material and we brought different skill sets in terms of what we knew about before or what we had. I had another book going, which I've never actually done since then, but I spent a lot of time researching Native Americans and I thought I could really contribute something there. And Ed knows popular culture and many topics, but that's one of them in, in ways that I don't. So this is one of those instances where uh, uh, a, a, an approach combining skills of a couple of different scholars really uh, works to the benefit of, of everyone. Since a, a lot of listeners are authors or would-be authors, can you talk a little bit about the process of co-writing a book? Uh, how do you guys do that? What did you learn from that experience? Would you do it again? Yeah, I um, I would definitely do it again. Um, for us, the I think with Paul and I, our personalities are such that we we we're both focused more on being creative than deconstructive um we're we're and more writers where we want where we actually like more layers of analysis and interpretation and so and because of that neither one of us uh got testy with whether it was a criticism or if, if adding another layer of interpretation um so i just think temperamentally we worked really well together. The way the writing worked for us, it worked out for us beautifully because we screwed it up. And um, what I mean by that is we wrote a lot of the book originally thematically and separately. So kind of like I did one chapter on, you know, the white Jesus from um, the colonial period of the Civil War. And Paul did a chapter on Native Americans and Jesus over that time period. And the reader reports, the external readers just hated it. They hated the th- our thematic approach. And they said, kind of univocally, it had to be chronological. You know, it had to be woven together through chronology. And that forced us to take pretty much every paragraph of the original manuscript and move it, hmm. which meant new transitions, new topic sentences. But it, at that, it became really seamless. You know, the writing, the voice became... Um, at least in my estimation, kind of a really uh, just a blended voice where it's not it's neither mine nor Paul's. It's kind of, it's us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are certain topics that one of us wrote more than the other, but the other person has at this point has contributed or edited those particular paragraphs so much that 
the the voice became blended. And this is one of those instances where you see how the peer review process is supposed to work, which is someone taking your uh, original manuscript and saying, this is a good topic, lots of interesting stuff, but you need to rewrite it, and here's how I think you should rewrite it. And then going through the process of doing that together just really transformed the book into something so much better than um, uh, I think uh, I had in mind in the first place. Um, yeah, and and we're and finally that like, and Paul and I are are good natured friends, and so I mean we were emailing back and forth all day about this, but, but because we like that, and so um, you know I think it was it was a really fun process, um, you know, pl- playing with all the material over and over again. Yeah, I should say I've done four books now with other people, two with Ed, one edited in this one, and then two with Philip Goff. So I've done a lot of co-authoring and uh, I, I just wouldn't have it any, any other way as far as those, those particular, those, those books are all so different than and better and broader than I could have conceived on my own that I'm really grateful for the experiences I've had with all of them. Now, one of the things that's really uh, interesting about this book is th- this is a, a real serious academic book, but it's gotten very widespread attention. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, again, for kind of the benefit of the listeners, um, how how do you become an academic rock star? <laughs> how do you how do you do this? Do you guys have any reflections on this this long process that you you guys have been involved in for for over a year and a half now? It seems like. Um, I, I would. I would go pay attention to what um, Stephen Prothero is doing and follow his example because um, because nobody does it better. I, I think being this kind of public intellectual in American religious history than than he does. But um, you know, for us, um, I think Paul's blog had already given him a kind of on the ground medium, you know, a place where people already knew who he was, knew what he was working on. And from there, things kind of percolated out in the internet. So we approached, you know, the Atlantic Monthly online and some other, you know, uh, um, online places. And the bigger newspapers and magazines like the New York Times and NPR, they seem to feed off of that kind of the ground of the blogosphere and the, the internet sphere. And so we kind of, Paul had already done the legwork for years um, of just having those connections of being somebody in that blogged world. And then things fed up. Um, and then, you know, it's Jesus, it's race. We've got, you know, a quote-unquote black president. Um, so there were a lot of natural fits there. The other element of this is hustling. You know, when an issue would come up, whether it was the Bible miniseries or something else, you know, Paul and I were emailing each other like, hey, are you on this or I'm on it? And I'm going to do this op-ed piece. Can you finish it for me? And so we, we just, we hustled a lot as well. Um, so that that's... Um, that's how I think it worked, at least on my end. <laughs> yeah, very much so. You have to, um, well, t- two things. One is you have to think a lot about 
audience. So there's the academic audience. That's really what my blog is for primarily. And then there's a kind of, um, I don't know, educated intellectual audience such as might read the Atlantic. And then there's a broader audience such as might pick up a New York times kind of page. And you have to think about what are the editors of these kinds of things exactly going to want. So with the New York times, for example, Ed had proposed a couple of different things to them and we had sent them something several months before the book was published, hoping to get it published around the time the book came out and they just sat on it and did nothing. And that just, that piece just died or maybe, maybe it got put somewhere else. I don't remember. And, um, and then one day Ed just had an idea of something that had just happened in the news that would connect to this. And then we wrote this thing and the next thing they knew they took it. But then the New York times after sitting for five months doing nothing says we need it tomorrow. And you got to be, on cue, on your email, ready to respond to all sorts of queries and fact checking and that kind of thing that they do. So you got to part of this hustling is you got to be on your toes, um, and you got to be pretty connected, and you have to, you know, you have to be willing to do that because it does it does take up a certain part of your life. Um, and th- these people don't wait around for these things, so that's part of it. And a lot of it too is just. Uh, if you get no for an answer or you don't hear back at all, which happens frequently, you just shrug it off and keep forward. Um, so I know we had that Atlantic piece came out that did really well. We proposed something else for them. They never got back to us. That happens. And you just go on and you find something else to do, or you find the thing like the Bible miniseries that, um, religion dispatches was interested in as far as me writing. And that was an obvious tie in to, the white Jesus, because what was Jesus in the Bible miniseries, but yet another white guy. So it's kind of a perfect opportunity to both write about the series as well as place it within the context of our book. Now, uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Paul's Paul's point about um, audience and I think also fits with um, editorial control. You know, and that is, um, at least for me, it was being willing to play the media game. And me, and what I mean by that is, like on, on NPR, they kept asking me, um, well, what did Jesus look like? And I didn't want to answer that question because I honestly don't know. And I don't think the anthropology, you know, the, the forensics of it really matters. And at one point, one of the producers just stopped the, the mic, you know, stopped the recording and said, if you don't answer this question, we're not, we're not going with this story. <laughs> and, and so, you know, yeah. And we have a, we ha- I had a choice at that point. I could, you know, say, well, I'm not going to answer and then not get that, that form of media attention, or I can throw out that answer um, and hoping to be able to get to other points and perspectives that, that I have, because the, the ultimate point is it's not like it's not my classroom, you know, where where I can have a little more control over what kind of content gets out there and how it gets shaped. You know, when you talk to a New York Times reporter or a CNN reporter, they're going to shape the story the way that they want for for good and for ill. Um, and that's just kind of part of this part of this uh, media game as well. Exactly. They'll rewrite it for you. I should say one other experience I had was a little three-minute CNN interview. So this is kind of the, uh, the reverse of what we've been saying, which is um, this is someone who would obviously not – she knew nothing about the book. It was just a, a short CNN.com piece that we had run about jokes about Jesus. Um, and so she asked stuff that really had nothing to do with the book in a sense. And I just kind of floundered for three minutes and quickly realized – 
this is something I should either a learn how to do, i.e. the three minute media interview, or b just not do it. Uh, and I'm currently on B. I've turned down a couple of things because I'm, I'm just not good. I'm just not going to do the two to three minute thing. I just can't do it. So let's let's move into uh, some of the content here. Um, m- most of the, what we're talking about revolves around images of Jesus and, w- and what exactly he looked like. I'm not going to ask you uh, what what you think he looked like. Um, this interview will not go forward <laughs> unless you ask. That but uh, one of the things that uh, maybe we should address before we get into kind of uh, the American scene is what sources do we have about uh, what Jesus looked like? Uh, what, what early sources do we have, that is? Yeah, basically none. Um, you know, we have um, obviously the Gospels and, other, and then other quote-unquote Gnostic texts, um, which – talk at large about bodies, but they don't talk about how we consider racialized bodies, skin tone, eye color, hair, things like that. A lot of the first art, just, you know, that, that it still is in existence, often had Jesus represented as an animal, often as a lion, um, or even sometimes com- connected Jonah with the Jesus figure. Um, and so we have a couple hundred year gap where there basically is nothing. And then we start to get, you know, these kind of early um, frescoes and catacomb um, pieces. Uh, the other thing here that uh, that you guys bring up in the introduction, which is really important, is you, you would assume the book is, uh, you know, primarily about race. And it is. Um, but what what are some of the other factors that determine um, how images or how people think about the appearance of Jesus? Uh, how do some of these become popular? Why are others not, uh, you know, carried out or continuing among communities? What kind of historical factors make images of Jesus important or uh, popular? Go for it, Paul. Boy, there's so many of them. Uh, so uh, one thing that we talk about early in the book is obviously the influence of Puritanism. What image do they have of Jesus? None. Why not? Because their entire religious ideology is about not having images of the divine like that. Um, so that, that obviously plays a, a key factor. Uh, another is, as we get later into the book, when you have the rise of the mass-produced white Jesus in the 19th century, beginning in about the 1820s, 30s, and going forward. How are Native peoples and African Americans and other peoples, as you get later in American history, how are they going to respond to that? Do they even have the choice of whether to respond to it? Um, How does the image of the white Jesus become part of slave imagery in such a way that they describe hair parted in the middle that to that level of, of you know long straight sort of white people's hair parted in the middle is, is how you see it in some of the slave narratives and then you try to understand how that uh, how that comes about then when you get to the 20th century obviously you have movies and all the mechanisms of popular culture that uh, reproduce these things that come from an older history such that the Jesus of the Bible series that I mentioned a few minutes ago 
it he has to look like he does there's not a genre of jesus movie that uh really allows for for anything else so samson can be black other characters can be various other ethnicities but we know what jesus looks like uh and that's that's a that's a long result of our history because this text is so rich and we won't be able to go through through all the examples uh or even close to them um one of the things that you kind of touch upon throughout the book is how things like material culture, things like place or geography, issues of technology, these are some of the things that uh, people are responding to in, in ways of uh, imagining Jesus in the image of him. Um, when uh, in, in the colonial period, when we have uh, Christians encountering Native Americans, how, how was Jesus presented in these encounters? One of the things that we talk about, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, one is this this Protestant, uh, Puritan rather, prohibition on imagery obviously doesn't affect the Jesuit Catholics who are bringing crucifixes, who are bringing all sorts of uh, the material culture of Christianity and, you know, planting crosses on the, uh, the the shore banks of an Indian community, something like that, uh, and writing about it in the, in the Jesuit relations. So that's something that we discuss at, at some length. When we get to the 18th century, we spend a lot of time in the book on the Moravians, because the Moravians have this intensely physical imagery about Jesus that has everything to do with Jesus's blood. So we have a, a phrase in the book that Jesus was red before he was white, obviously not physically red and skin tone, um, but red in the sense that he was all about the blood gushing from his side where he was stabbed while he was on the uh, on the cross. And Moravian imagery and theology is all about how drinking the blood of Jesus will purify your soul. Go ahead, Ed. Oh, yeah, I am. Um to add to, to that point, um, other instances include um, where language becomes an important element of how Jesus is portrayed across these lines through translation. So oftentimes when Europeans would translate the Bible, they might, you know, um, put the stories of Jesus into the present tense, which allowed Jesus to be an active, everyday player among Native Americans who then would talk about seeing Jesus. They would just run into Europeans and say, oh, yeah, we've, we've seen your Jesus, our Manitou. He showed us where the game was. And so what we analyzed was in the translation process, Jesus, by placing Jesus in the present tense, and where geography and place really matter to the sacred worlds of these Native Americans, they brought him there, met him there, um, and then brought him into their own, you know, whether it's hunting culture, life. So ostensibly, um, Jesus could be considered, you know, part of Native American communities at that moment, even though no one right there is referencing hair or skin tone or phenotype or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and just to add to that, one uh, point I got from a great new book by Tracy Lavelle called Catholic Calumet is uh, if you translate Jesus as having an Illinois language, as having something to do with chief of the tribe, and then you think about what chief means in Illinois conceptions, chief is someone that is sort of in control, but his control is constantly negotiated. 
And so Jesus becomes someone that you negotiate with uh, in your daily life, sort of as someone who's has somewhat more power than you, but also is subject to your power in terms of uh, telling him what you need. And he has to kind of respond to you. During during this colonial period, uh, you you talk about Jesus's role in the the founding of the country. Can you can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, we um, that was a great. That's a, we have this whole section called the Christless Constitution, which is a kind of riff off um, the, the book, the Godless Constitution, where in the original manuscript we didn't have anything about the founding fathers, the American Revolution, the Constitution. And when Paul and I rearranged the manuscript chronologically, we found, wait, why do we have this huge absence in this time period? And that's because Jesus is profoundly absent in the rhetoric and in the material culture of the revolutionary age. Um, and that kind of, and it's you know there's no place in the plan in the national capital um, where you know with a big Jesus stained glass that's that's not there. Jesus doesn't get mentioned in any of the founding documents. He's just there's all this kind of massive debate about whether the Christian whether the founders were Christian or not. Is this a Christian nation? And um, and those are all really important debates. But one of the things Paul and I really found over and over again is. If it was a Christian nation, it's not a Christ-centered nation in language, in rhetoric, or in material culture. And um, that struck us as important for later when we get this kind of, you know, America becomes awash with whether it's Jesus imagery or, you know, eventually, you know, people asking, well, what would Jesus do by the end of the 20th century? One uh, story that Ed discovered this, actually, that we tell in the book is a, a Russian diplomat who's traveling in the United States around that time comments that he, he sees sacred images everywhere on the wall. And that's, of course, the image of George Washington. And nowhere do you see someone saying they see images of Jesus all over the place because they're not there. Uh, and so we have this sort of intense civil religion that which early develops around the, the figure of Washington. But Jesus imagery is a is a is a later development. So uh, in the in the early Republican period, you talk about uh, this this shift in kind of Protestant relationship to images. Why is there this shift, and then what kind of images do we find? Yeah, um, there's a couple a couple important shifts in the early 19th century. Um, one is the United States is a new nation that has to then fend for itself, and um, Americans, white Americans, are really fretted about, ooh, how can we continue? How can we continue as a republic? This is this new republican experiment. Um, they also have – they're also terrified of – their children not continuing a kind of Christian tradition, um, and so they need to make sure their kids become good Christians who are then good citizens, their public continues, and they have the technological capabilities of producing and mass-producing books and paper and images. So bring all that together, and you get organizations like the American Tract Society creating Jesus imagery and saying the re we're doing this for the children because children can 
can grow closely attached to an image before they can become attached to a text. So you can show a kid, you know, here's a picture of Jesus and teach him or her affection for it, that this is the son of God, before they can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or think about, you know, theological problems. And so it's kind of that whole combination of New Republic, how do we perpetuate it, and now we're technologically able to. The backdrop to all of this, the kind of underpinning, is a massive rise in the number of slaves and the pushing westward, especially in the southwest, of Native Americans um, off of lands in Georgia, um, places like that. And so all of that kind of cauldron comes together where Jesus is transformed in the imagery from light to white. And because light is it's really hard to represent, you know, visually in a little piece of paper drawing. Um, and it's not personal. And, and so when American Tract Society and others put out an image of Jesus, they put in this white face with um, flowing hair part in the middle. And they use this letter called the Publius Lentulus letter, um, which is a kind of fabricated piece. But that's, that's the kind of uh, all the, all the puzzle pieces we saw coming together for that moment. To which I would just simply add, there's one other puzzle piece, which is the rise of, of Catholicism and Catholic immigrants, particularly as you get into a little, still a little bit later, the 1840s, 1850s. Catholics not having the issues with, the, with um, prohibitions on imagery, having a kind of plethora of imagery, uh, and obviously Protestants are very worried about what Catholics are going to do to American democracy and so forth. And I think that factors in as well. Uh, so Jesus also uh, played a very significant role in debates about slavery. Um, can, can you talk about kind of the, the, the two sides of this, uh, this argument and how Jesus was represented within this? Yeah, go ahead, Paul. I'll start that. Um, so one person that we talk about is um, a um, – uh, a missionary to the slaves in the antebellum era uh, who's very much concerned with imparting the, the true and correct message of Christianity and has images of, of Christ, various kinds of religious images, including, including images of Jesus that he's imparting, uh, imparting to the slaves. Okay. And so that's one, that's one half of it. One of the two sides that, that, that you were talking about uh, Jesus has submissive, obedient, this is part of the white Southern idea about training slaves in the, in the correct way. Uh, and then you have the other side of it, which I think is a very complicated side, which is how slaves interact with Jesus in their own personal imagery. So I mentioned before that to some extent they have to absorb white Jesus imagery that is so omnipresent all around them. That's why they relate Jesus imagery the way that they that they do they kind of have to envision him that way but just because Jesus is a white man doesn't mean that he sympathizes with slaveholders because Jesus is a small friendly man that you can talk to in a way that's not true of whites that slaves interact with typically um, and uh, so uh, what we talk about is how Jesus is um, white appearance belies his black sympathies. And one of the most powerful images in the book, for my money, is an image from Uncle Tom's Cabin, a very complicated image in which a white Jesus is standing to the side 
This is in the illustrated edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1852. Jesus is standing on the side of Uncle Tom getting beaten to death. Jesus is not physically doing anything about it, uh, but he's spiritually judging it in a way. Um, and this has a lot to do with white people's conceptions of the kind of passivity of, of slave Christianity um, and with kind of romantic racialist ideas that, that, that we discuss in the book. Um, but one thing that a lot of slave, uh, former slave abolitionists do or black abolitionists do is try to inject Jesus more forcefully into the slave debate that Jesus would have would have specifically intervened in a way much like turning over the the money changers at the temple that that kind of violent action go ahead in there's there's a kind of um assumption in the literature and this is most noteworthy in, in mark knoll's um terrific terrific work that in the battle for the bible in the pro-slavery versus anti-slavery struggle that the pro-slavery folks were more biblical in the sense that they read the Bible kind of more appropriately. They were closer to reading in a kind of literalist fashion. And usually the abolitionists are seen as, you know, the proto-modernists who who turn to history, who turn to a whole bunch of other ways of reading the Bible, that they become liberal readers of the Bible. When it comes to Jesus, what we actually found in our work was those roles are reversed. That the pro-slavery forces who claim to be literalists, literate, you know, trying to read the Bible in this kind of literalist fashion, they're the ones who start making all these arguments from history and from absence. So, because Jesus never says yay or nay about slavery. So, pro-slavery forces say, ah, look, look, because he doesn't say anything, therefore it must be okay. Because in his historical context, there were slaves. And so they sound like proto-modernists in that sense. You know, they accept history, context as mattering. They're trying to make meaning from absence. And the abolitionists turn to what they see as literalist readings of things like the golden rule, where they say, okay, let's read the golden rule literally. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Would you be enslaved? Would you like it if someone whipped you? Would you like it if someone sold your family away? And what's so fascinating about this debate is it actually happens on the floor of Congress. After the Civil War, during civil rights, early um, during Reconstruction debates over civil rights, um, two congressmen actually have a debate over what's the meaning of the golden rule. Does it actually apply across race lines? And so Paul and I have this kind of we, – we make the argument that if abolitionists lost the battle for the Bible, they won the joust for Jesus. Um, and even during the Civil War, a bunch of Confederates are talking about how basically um, in that kind of – in the Jesus struggle, they kind of lost – um, the, the pro-slavery forces, because Jesus just never—he just never said, you know, okay to slavery. Um, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit, just uh, for the sake of time. Um, but in the early 20th century, we have um, a lot of African Americans uh, now thinking about Jesus uh, from their own perspective. And you talk about people like W.E.B. Du Bois. You talk about. Um, the artist Henry Asawa Tanner. Um, 
how, how are these people thinking about Jesus and depicting him through images and, and their, uh, their writings? That's yours, Ed. Huh, I was going to say that's all you, Paul. <laughs> no, that's, I'm talking about Du Bois. That's you. <laughs> well, let's just say it's great. It's, it's fascinating what they're doing because basically early 20th century, what we have for the first time is African-Americans having social space, capital, and community to be able to think about Jesus in new ways, to um, collectively create new images of Jesus. And they all start bouncing ideas off of one another. So Du Bois and Tanner, they're friends. And lo and behold, Du Bois writes about that African-Americans are behind a veil. And what does Henry Tanner do in his paintings? Puts Jesus behind a veil in, in some of the work. And we see in African-American magazines and newspapers and columns all this conversation about Jesus being a person of color. Now, we can add in a couple other background context factors, and one is um, segregation, and another is lynching. The rise of lynching provided a clear analog for African-Americans being likened to the Jesus, the Christ figure. And so we see all this artwork um, that links the lynch victim and the Christ on the cross victim. And, you know, we write about that pretty extensively. And, you know, James Cone's um, latest book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, kind of takes up that problematic um, really, really forcefully. To that, I would just add, Ed talks a, uh, a lot about uh, Du Bois and Tanner and, you know, pretty educated, well-known people of that, of the earlier 20th century. Uh, one other part of this is self-trained, uneducated, un- unformally educated folk artists that we discuss in the book, Clementine Hunter, um, uh, people like that, uh, Purvis Young later in the book, who are really depicting Jesus in ways that would get picked up by intellectuals in the 1960s in the so-called black theology movement, but they're really doing that much earlier. And that, that to me is evidence of a kind of pretty strong um, move towards the, the Africanization of, of imagery amongst ordinary people in the earlier 20th century. Um, now, also in the early 20th century, we have Native Americans kind of rethinking Jesus as well. So, uh, yeah, we talk about, um, uh, the, of course, the famous figure Wovoka from the from the late nineteenth century, who was conceived and uh, described himself partly in jest, partly seriously, I think, as as the kind of um, representation of the Messiah um, uh, come to Earth. And so, Wovoka is someone who has a typically complicated heritage, Native American religious heritage, raised by a Presbyterian father um, with an English name. He adopts his Indian name later, um, but very much influenced by Native American background. And all these things are kind of combined in what becomes the ghost dance and then what, of course, becomes the tragedy of of, of Wounded Knee. And that, that kind of complicated relationship with Jesus is really characteristic of Native Americans in the early 20th century, who on the one hand are told to be like Jesus, on the other hand are looking at pictures of the white Jesus on their walls, sometimes in the very houses and cabins that they're living in, with long, uh, flowing long hair, 
such as Native Americans would would have, uh, and then told that they must cut their hair to be civilized. And if you just think about sort of the, the complicated symbolism of all that and the sort of tortured symbolism of all that, that's really what they're what they're going through at the time. Native Americans are also learning to incorporate Jesus into uh, rituals such as the sun dance in which Jesus becomes a figure. And yet the sun dance at a certain point is prohibited under federal regulation. Um, it's kind of discouraged before 1921 and then becomes part of kind of official law to officially prohibit it in, in 1921. Uh, and so if Jesus is part of your Sundance and the Sundance is prohibited, what, you know, how do you think about Jesus? So a, a good deal of what we talk about in the, that part of the book is the, the very complicated relationships with, that Native Americans would have with trying to, um, well, particularly Christian Native Americans would have with trying to understand what Jesus was going to be for them. It was really a difficult question. In some ways, perhaps a more difficult question than it would have been for African Americans who could more easily identify with Jesus as a kind of ally. And it's just not that clear for many Native Americans that Jesus was ipso facto their ally. White Americans were also rethinking Jesus at this time, and specifically you talk about uh, how the Ku Klux Klan reimagined uh, the, the image of Jesus. Can, can you talk a bit about how they rethought him? Yeah, in the early 20th century is when we get the real high the high watermark of expressive white supremacy and also um, the most kind of confined or, you know, limited white supremacy. So we get, um, in the late 19th century, we see the rise of, of new immigrants, quote unquote, from Eastern and Central Europe. We have Asian um, immigrants to the West Coast, and we see a whole group of white Americans who are fearful of all these all these new people and, you know, African-Americans are free and they start really trying to limit who can have power, who can be a citizen. And then, so they start limiting who's considered white. And part of that process is a explicit whitening and blue eyed of Jesus. And they actually talk about a quote, Nordic Jesus. Nordic for white Americans becomes their kind of their version of Aryan um, of the word. And and so we see um, pro-white supremacist writers who then inform the Ku Klux Klan saying, you know what, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but you know, the way Jesus acted, he acted like an Anglo-Saxon. He acted like a Nordic. And and his eyes, you know, they Maybe they were blue, and so we see the first American artwork of a blue-eyed Jesus and blonde hair, and um, and that's it's an important move because on one hand it shows the rise of this kind of expressive culture of white supremacy. Um, it also shows its defensiveness. You know that it's 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 really lash it's lashing out and latching on to whatever it can get its hands on, even this Jesus who, you know. It doesn't say anything about blue eyes in the Bible, and Americans are kind of Bible-reading folks, and um, a lot of them. And, and so they're, they're setting up – the white supremacists are setting up a really unstable house. Um, and they even seem to know they're setting up an unstable um, house at the time. 
You you talk about the the role of early early American films and how with uh, the production of films during this period, kind of after the Great Depression, we have a, a, another kind of rethinking of, of what Jesus should look like. Can you talk a bit about how, how this early film period changed? That's yours, Ed. Go ahead. Oh, sure. I, you know, one of the huge elements of the book is the continual and perpetual changing and tweaking of, of what whiteness is defined by. And so, for instance, in the, in the, in the film industry with castings of Jesus, um, he gets cast as white. And what happens, what the films do is they inscribe a sense of this is what Jesus must have looked like. And if anything deviates from that, the viewer is just off script and, and, and is confused by the by the visual disjunction. And so in 1927, we see the King of Kings where the actor portraying Jesus had short cropped hair that was close to his head. The movie is really interesting and really well done and it's funny, but reviewers were all, all through this kind of hissy fit about the hair, that the hair just wasn't right. And so what the films do is they, um, they kind of, they're, they're confined by the sense that the earlier images of this is what Jesus must have looked like, but then they perpetuate them and, and then people see them over and over and over again. But over the 20th century, something fascinating happens. Jesus becomes younger. Um, the earlier portray- actors who portrayed him were in their 50s. And then by the mid 20th century, he's down, down to his 30s. And by the 60s, he looks even in his young 20s, the, the, the person portraying Jesus. Jesus gets tanner along the way, which is part of American beauty culture. Same reason why even you know when folks are talking about John F. Kennedy looking a little tannish, that that was seen as, as better looking. And then he gets fitter. So when we get to Jim Caviezel in The Passion of the Christ, um, <laughs> he's when he's not getting beaten to a pulp. He, he's ripped. I mean, he's got good muscles. He's strong. And so what happens is whiteness is during the 20th century is also being determined by beauty culture and Hollywood beauty culture. And, he get, he gets and even too. Jesus is being <laughs> transformed. Yes, yes. Uh, the Bible miniseries is a great example of that. I mean, that's basically it's as close to Brad Pitt as Jesus as you can get. <laughs> so, so that's kind of the trajectory. Um, to jump back just a little bit um some of these other important images you talk about are uh one is this uh what is it warner salman the head of christ uh, which was in 1941 can, can you talk about this image and why why this image why did this become so important well warner salman was a calling uh, david morgan yeah calling david morgan warner salman was a lutheran fundamentalist painter. <laughs> And he uh, was uh, commissioned to do this piece that took off for a lot of reasons. One is it got carried by GIs overseas. Uh, two, it becomes, in part because of that, uh, in part because of a commercial, uh, a, a commercial campaign, uh, becomes the most reproduced image in, in the history of art. Um, and one thing that's interesting about that image to me is that he looks very maybe uh, feminized or effeminate to us, but he actually, Warner Salman actually conceived this as a more masculinized Jesus. That was part of the early 20th century worries about religion becoming too feminine. We have to remasculinize it. That's something that 
sort of goes through much of American history. Um, but I think it was some sort of combination of the a sort of perfect popular culture, artistic portrayal meeting a commercial endeavor that could market it meeting the right time and place being the world war two era. And after uh, meeting the anti-communist impulse that comes after world war two, you put all those things together and um, you have the results that you have, you have the effect of a, a, you know, artistic superstar. So in the contemporary period, you talk a little bit about, uh, let's let's say Asian responses or Asian encounters with the, the Jesus image and what they're doing, partly because of of sources, but also you you kind of uh, state in the beginning that you have to be selective. Can you talk a little bit about how are, how are others in America thinking of Jesus's image? Well, we had a, a series on my blog about. Asian Americans and the color of Christ. And we had three responses to it. And one of the reasons that we did that is we had a, we were giving a talk at a university earlier this year and someone challenged us on this point, basically saying, why is this not part of the book? And there's a few, there's a little bit in the book about it, but not really a whole lot. Um, And there's reasons why there's not a whole lot. Asian Americans come later into the picture. uh, And the, we argued that the, the dominant imagery of Christ and this kind of white black native American form had already taken shape by that, by that point. Um, but one of the things that you, we want to talk about there is uh, in the late 19th century, how Jesus becomes part of the process of the Americanization, so-called Americanization of, of Asian immigrants and Asians who become Christians, such as let's say Chinese American Baptists, uh, in San Francisco, um, if you look in their church today, right off Waverly Place, Ed and I were walking there earlier this year and saw this. You look right inside the church building, and there's the white Jesus staring you right in the face. Uh, and so Asian Americans, to some degree, kind of have to they're, – they're stepping into a Jesus imagery that's been preset and preformed for them. And regardless of what they think about it or want to do about it, it's kind of there and they have to deal with it. I'm thinking about the question of twofold question of one about Asian Americans, um, but then also about, you know, not on side of Christ, the Christian canopy. Um, I have, uh, I'm Amber Tiffany, who does all this work with Asian Americans in California in like the 1920s. Um, and she has found all these photographs of like, you know, um, some market that's set up. And among all the goods that the, the group will be selling, there'll be these little pictures of white Jesus. And, you know, she's she makes the claim kind of what Paul said earlier about this is if this is a, a signpost for um, we're OK here in America. This is our this is our signature of. Americanization, um, even if we don't actually speak English at this point, or we can't do other, we can't perform other ways, our Americanness, this white Jesus becomes a surrogate for that. I think, you know, we didn't do a lot with folks way beyond um, the Christian canopies. What Paul and I really did find, though, is even people who tried to avoid Jesus by the 20th century, even folks who um, just, you know, want nothing to do with the imagery or the person just couldn't, could, you know, couldn't 
avoid dealing with, whether it's seeing it on television or hearing about the debate or the discussion. And so, but we didn't do a lot of work on, on how did non-Christian peoples then interact with these debates. And I think that'd be a really interesting kind of article or, or pieces that would look at, okay, so how do, you know, new religious movements, alternative religious movements, et cetera, um, how do they deal with this whole um, race and body and Jesus stuff, um, you know, given the kind of broader strokes that Paul and I um, painted? One of the other big issues that you, you discuss in kind of the contemporary period, which uh, that we should talk about, at least here for a moment, <laughs> is the, the role of Jesus in kind of contemporary politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about this? Um, so we have George W. Bush famously saying that uh, Jesus is his favorite philosopher, and this kind of introduces a whole discussion in the in the 2000s of what really is going to be the role of a religious figure adopted by politicians, usually by politicians of the right, occasionally by politicians of the left as well. Um, and so Jesus becomes a symbol for the entire centuries long now discussion of the relationship between uh between religion and politics um I, I think he just kind of carries that that weight with him you know i think the important factor that, that I, what our book really shows is the way how jesus be, how the images of jesus and thinking about his body are their surrogates and their portals they're surrogates for other issues you know that people can can make their make hay with but then there are portals that take us to other memories or other places or try to connect make other emotional connections you know and so and and that politicians are playing with both the you know signifiers and the portals um partly because they they have to it's just in it's so robustly ingrained in our culture you finish up the book um, with a, a, a short section on making fun of Jesus and kind of uh, playing comedically off the image of Jesus. Did this not happen before? Uh, and, and why do you think this is, if it didn't happen before, why do you think this is happening now? Short answer, no, it didn't happen before. It really comes about in the 60s and 70s and first really begins to take shape in the sitcoms of the 1970s, um, and it's pretty interesting. The single most commented piece online that we've ever done was just the short piece. That's just a basically a short 800-word pricey of that epilogue, and it got like 7,000 comments uh, with people getting very angry oftentimes about how this is blasphemous and so forth. So it shows kind of how sensitive uh uh, comedic ideas about the divine or about Jesus can can still be. Um, why it happens now and could not happen before. I mean, there's sort of all kinds of reasons for that. One is the rise of popular culture, popular uh, culture such as television, and then later on the internet, in which sort of everything goes. One is a kind of rise of uh, a comedic culture in which everything is game for um, for ridicule in a way that would not have been true for earlier periods of American history. And I'm sure Ed has various other reasons as well, so take it, Ed. Um, you know, some of the other arguments we make are about um, that so much weight has been put on Jesus to like, hey, you know, solve the problem of slavery, figure out what to do with segregation. And that 
you know, that was just too much of a burden. And, and when we get to the 1970s and there's stagflation and we've got this kind of, you know, civil rights era is, is becoming, you know, shifting into concerns with urban areas and poverty, that one response to this was, oh, we just have to laugh about it. You know, it's kind of like having so much trauma that one maybe gets to the point where you start laughing about how terrible one's, your family is because, you know, the only thing to stop one from crying is, is to laugh. And, um, you know, I think the rise of, of a kind of expressive agnosticism that it, it itself is becoming more um, you know, presentable and, and forthwith. It, it also leads to it. So you get folks like Bill Maher um, who do that kind of work. And, you know, for Paul and I, we wanted to end the book that way to, to kind of show here's just how potent, how important this, this the body of Jesus has become to Americans, that it's even in, even in our most historical, contextual elements of society, and that's jokes. I mean, jokes only make sense to a given people in a given time, you know, with a given history. And so we really wanted to show, like, in the nooks and crannies, the deepest recesses of our kind of collective society, here we have the jokes. And to get the jokes, yeah, this history that we've written, um, you kind of have to know. Now, the, the book doesn't stop at the book, which I think is one of the really great things about this project. Um, and I'm wondering if you could, you could talk a little bit about your accompanying website. How did that come about? What exactly do you feel like is the purpose of that? What kind of things are you doing on that website? Yeah, the, the website is, I mean, this is a book made by the digital age, you know, with Paul and I emailing back and forth. We were able to see images that, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we would have never been able, we would have had to travel all over the world to see. And so Paul and I, we write about the digital age in the book and we thought, you know what, books need to be more than books. And, and we have so many documents, so many images that, that are mentioned in the book but aren't you know, in the pages of it, well, let's put those up online. And so the website has, you know, section by section, chapter by chapter, page by page. Here's the text being analyzed. Here's the image. Here's the primary sources. So you can go read Frederick Douglass's narrative and where we're talking about it. It also, we also have a place there for, um, classroom discussion questions that um, a group of scholars from Florida State and from Yale and from the University of Chicago put together. They took they took the book and created questions and syllabi and discussions. We have um, videos there where scholars and everyday people comment on new artwork or questions about Jesus in American society. Um, we have a place where you can share your own story, um, which has, a, I think, a couple hundred at this point um, where people have written, here's my encounters with material objects and the sacred. And because um, we wanted to give a place for teachers. So if you're going to use the book, here's where, you know, you don't need to create a PowerPoint. They're all, all the images are right here. And we wanted a place where people can talk back, where people can comment and, and, live and act in the digital age just as we wrote the book in the digital 
Before I let you guys go, can you tell us a little bit about what you guys are working on now? Uh, sure. Um, I'll start with that. I am, well, a couple things. One is uh, since this book has been done and we've done our book tour and, you know, we're sort of moving towards a breakup. So I know Jay-Z and Justin Timberlake are doing concerts together right now <laughs> and they're going to have to break up. And when that happens, Jay-Z and Justin, if you're listening to this, you know, just ask me for some, for some advice about that because <laughs> you're going to have to go work on your your solo projects after this. Uh, I'm working on a book called uh, Trouble the Waters, Religion in the South from Jamestown to Katrina, which is designed to be a book that will be in the University of Chicago's History of American Religion series. That used to be a big series in American religion and died and it's been resurrected in just the, in the last few years. Um, and so I, I hope it to be a book that kind of uh, uh, is a new, uh, a book that is for our generation, what Donald Matthews' great book, Religion in the Old South, was for a previous generation. That's what I'm doing. Um, oh, that's what, Paul, that's what you're up to. Um, I, uh, I'm i just hoping that when I meet people, they won't say that they thought Paul and I were the same person, because um, that's happened a number of times to me. Um I am doing a book right now on notions of radical evil during the um, middle of the 19th century in the United States, um, mostly uh, with regard to the American Civil War. And um, I'm basically just fed up with God and um, in the literature. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired of God in America, America's God, God in the White House. I'm kind of interested in um, following kind of W. Scott Poole and his focus on monsters and evil and um, spend some time with, you know, the darker side. It's, it's a little time that, you know, the devil should get his due. And um, so that's what I'm working on. That's great. And well, thanks again for, for making the time to, to talk and uh, we really appreciate uh, this conversation. And I encourage you all to check out the website, check out the book, and uh, keep up to date with uh, Ed and Paul. Thanks again, guys. Thank you, Christian. Thanks, Christian. This is great. That was my conversation with Ed Bloom and Paul Harvey about their book, The Color of Christ, the Son of God, and the Saga of Race in America, which was published with the University of North Carolina Press in 2012. Thanks for listening to New Books and Religion. 